idea of all these divisions in teaching and doctrines was not something that was new, and it's not something that we're just now facing. This is something that was happening far, far back in history, even in, under the Old Testament times. And so we had been dealing with different groups. We had talked about how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees and how the Pharisees had left some of the teachings of the old law as well and had put in some of their own. We had talked about the Judaizers, those who were trying to say in order to be a good Christian, you also have to follow the old law. We had talked about how Paul even dealt with those who claimed to be apostles that were greater than those that Jesus had taught, those that Jesus had said, these are my chosen men, which we saw in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon them and identified them as such. We even talked about how these men were going about and talking about men like Paul and saying, well, he's just not as educated as we are. He's not quite as good as we are and was really attacking the credibility of God's chosen people. Now, we even delved into a little bit about the Nicolaitans and how Historically speaking, there's really not a lot of information about the Nicolaitans aside from what we read in the book of Revelation, which tells us that really God just hates the work of these people and hates that what they stand for. And the final group we had talked about last week was that of the Gnostics, and we talked about how that's a group that really did not die. It really carried on a lot of those ideas to today because there was a very specific style that the Gnostics followed. Now, could someone tell me what it was about the Gnostics? What was their entire philosophy made of? What did they try to do? From those who can remember from last week. Okay, they believe flesh is evil. That was one thing they taught about. But what did they try to do when they were structuring their ideology? What did they try to blend together in order to make this, this ideology? Greek philosophy was one. What else? I heard something else over here. What was it? Judaism? Judaism was one. Yes, they took some Jewish philosophy. They took Greek philosophy, Roman philosophy, even some pagan ideas as well. They merged together to create this animal that the first century church had to deal with. Now, we had talked about some of these teachings really have carried on even to today, some of the doctrines that people are teaching. And really, what was the basis of these people? What did they claim to have that no one else did? What was their claim? They claimed to have secret knowledge. I know something that no one else knows. Everyone else has had it wrong for all these centuries, but we just now figured it out. We just now put it all together. Now, that might seem great on the cover of Discovery Magazine when you're talking about a scientific discovery, but when it comes to the revealed Word of God, which he says literally was said from the beginning, in fact, Paul even talked about in the book of Galatians, he says, if you are taught anything other than what we have taught you, the people who teach that, what does it say about them? They should be what? Accursed. They should be accursed. Why? You're taking the doctrine of God, you're twisting it into your own ideas, and you're sending it out into the world really, in effect, making yourself out to be God. If I come up into a pulpit or into, on, in a public setting or something and I start teaching a doctrine that only came from me, and I'm saying, you need to live by this, what on earth am I saying? What authority do I have to do that? None. None at all. I have no authority to come up with a doctrine and tell you and say, well, this is what I believe it should be, and then force you to follow it. Unfortunately, that's not something that's new, and it's something that happens even till today. There's a lot of preachers all across this country who they want to teach their own opinions, and what we were taught at Memphis was really funny. They said, if you have most preachers come up with their own hobby horse, 
and they will ride that hobby horse into the sunset. <laughs> that is how they want to t- approach things. They have their own ideas, they have their own opinions, and that's what they want to show us. Oh, a hand back here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about if you think about how we've described God even in the book of James and James someone pick up James chapter 1 verse 17 if you would. It's James chapter 1 verse 17. Someone just read all the way through that. Whoever gets there first just read it out loud. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. All right, so he says, every good and every perfect gift cometh from above. If we're talking about the world that God created, in Genesis chapter 2, how did God describe everything that he had made, including humanity? How did he describe it? Very good. Very good. God looked at this and said, I have created exactly what I set out to create. Now, you think about the world around us. Is there anything is there anything in this world that is inherently evil? Inherently evil. Now, this might be a little bit of a trick question. Inherently evil. Anything in this world, this physical world that is inherently in of itself evil. Well, man's philosophy would be one thing that could be approached that way. However, Knowledge is not wrong. Teaching is not wrong. Understanding is not wrong. So everything that is evil in this world is a corruption of something that God made. God created this world, exactly. And in, we just talked about in Genesis chapter 2, everything he made was perfect. However, when man sinned, we corrupted what God made. Is, is our emotions good? Is it good to have emotions? Is there a time and a place where anger is a good emotion? Is there a time and a place where sadness is a good emotion? Is there a time and a place where happiness is a good emotion? Is there a time and a place where all of those emotions are wrong? Absolutely. If I'm finding pleasure in something that is wrong, that's a bad place for happiness. If I'm sad over good things that are happening, or I'm sad because I'm jealous about something someone else did, that's a bad place for sadness. If I'm angry at my brother without a cause, Jesus even said that that was sinful in of itself. So I can take what God created. In fact, we read every one of those instances. We read of God being happy, God being proud of his people. We read about God being grieved by his people and hurt by his people. We also read about God being angry. So every one of those instances are good, but everything that is evil in this world is a corruption of what God made. So when we're looking at all these false teachings, for instance, they're taking something that God created that was good. The old law was good. It had a time and a place, and it was fulfilled when Jesus came. So they were taking that, and they were corrupting it. The New Testament that God created, it was good, it was wonderful, but they took it, and they corrupted it. So you see how this is how we're approaching this. But these Gnostics, they came about this with the mentality of, well, I have secret knowledge. I have something that... God didn't reveal to you. I have something you didn't get in the first edition. But now I'm telling you. Now I'm showing you what this is. But there's people even today who are claiming to do that. 
So this is not something that is radically different. But the next group we're going to be focusing on tonight, and let's go ahead and try to speed up the slides to where we are. When I have that last line on there, for those of you who might can read it, I'm having to actually kind of strain a little bit from the distance. But what is that last, what, when I, you read that last sentence, what immediately comes to mind? Others are focused, or we're focused on gaining prominence. What comes to mind? Diotrephes. That's the first one that comes to my mind, because that's what we know about it. If you would please turn to 3 John. That's 3 John. I'll let you figure out what chapter that is. But let's look at 3 John. Now, 3 John is a very interesting interesting book that was written because, based on what we understand, it was written to one group. Now, there's different specific audiences that he draws out. For instance, at the very beginning, he talks about Gaius or Gaius, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And he talks about all the good that Gaius had done and how he was a wonderful man. He says, in fact, he says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, we start off reading this book and it sounds great. It sounds like a wonderful book. John's writing and he's encouraging people. But what do we read right after that? Right after we talked about Gaius. We start in verse 5. He says, Beloved is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts, for are these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, or for sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So again, John is writing to these people, and it seems like this congregation is doing very well. There's a lot of good that's being done here. But let's get to verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, this is the ESV specifically, put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. I'm sure that many of us throughout the years, I know I'm not the, definitely not the oldest person in the room, but if I've already experienced some of this, I'm sure everyone else has, we've probably met someone just like that. Someone who is just hindering all the good that's being done, mostly because it doesn't make them happy in one way or another. Now, it might not make them happy because it's not done the way they want it to be done. Sometimes it might be the case that I don't like this because I wasn't consulted about it. There is a blatant attitude of pride that comes from that section. That is the person who says, this is all about me. Everything is about me. In fact, in the King James Version, it says he loved to have the preeminence. Now, when I think of the word preeminence, my mind immediately goes to that of kings and hearing about them. Sometimes someone would address a king and say, you're preeminence. Dealing with them as some sort of higher being, someone who has a lordship over. Now, 
if I am in a congregation of the Lord's church and my attitude is, look at me and this is all about me, who am I leaving out? First of all, God. Second of all, every other soul in that room. Because if it's all about me, then I don't care how you feel about things. Which again, goes in violation to everything that we read in the New Testament. We read about those who are humbling themselves. God, in fact, or James specifically described that. He says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. So if I'm taking this mentality of this is all about me and all about what makes me comfortable and happy, then I have to forget about everybody else. I have to completely cast that aside. And if we look at how Christ approached things, we look at how the first century church approached things, could there be anything farther from what was taught? Anything more polar opposite to who God is? In fact, if we even want to go back and look at passages such as Romans chapter 14, what's the entire premise of Romans chapter 14? We like to use it and say, well, this is a way we can get a, a get-out-of-jail-free card, you know, because everybody else is the weaker brother, and that makes it, they, they, we, just, they just don't understand. But really, the whole premise of Romans chapter 14 is putting others first. In fact, how did Paul describe it? He said, I would abstain from meat altogether rather than cause one of my brethren to stumble. See, at that point, there were people that were dealing with this change from the pagan world to the Christian world and trying to follow after Christ. And they were watching Christians taking these meats that were offered to idols, which was a very common pagan practice. It wasn't necessarily part of the ceremony. But Paul even described, it's just meat. That's all it is. You're just buying meat. However, there was a connotation attached to it, and it was causing brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, to stumble. And Paul very eloquently describes to these people, you come last. You come last. It's not about me and you. It's not about how we feel about things. It's what does the book say? It's what does God think about this? And if I have that mentality of I'm focused on everybody else in the congregation, now, not people-pleasing, we're not talking about that, but we're talking about I'm trying to help you to grow stronger, not to make you weaker, not to make you do things that you're uncomfortable with. However, when we're talking about this, if I have that mentality of I'm trying to put you first, what am I not going to be focused on? I'm not going to be focused on all the problems. I'm not going to be focused on everything that has to do with me. Now, some take this to an extreme. And when we read the scriptures, we like to have a black and white, all or nothing mentality. And I understand the desire to do that or the ease of doing that. However, not all the Bible is all about we got to go all the way over here or all the way over here. Now, when it comes to right and wrong, opposites. Those are obviously opposites. However, most of the Bible has to do with balance. Balancing how we approach things. Yes, I have to make sure I stand for the truth, but I don't have to fight every single battle. Some battles are better left unfought because it makes the church look bad. Or I make God look bad because that fight becomes more about me than it becomes about God. So it's about balance. I have to understand the times that I should act and the times I shouldn't act. I have to understand the times where I need to fight this tooth and nail and the times where it's like, okay, this guy's he's growing. He's learning. It just he needs a little patience, needs a little time. I don't have to chop his head off right now. It's all right. 
So we have to balance those things. We have to understand where that line is, and the Scriptures teach us about that consistently. I mean, why else would Jesus tell Peter that he's to forgive till 70 times 7? For us, we say you got three strikes, you're out. We sure do love baseball rules when it comes to forgiveness. But that's not how God approached things. God says as long as he's willing to forgive or willing to ask for forgiveness, you forgive him. You be ready to do that. And then we have passages such as 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where it says love thinketh no evil. Oh, that one's difficult sometimes. <laughs> love thinketh no evil. Well, we see the person that we know has lived a less than stellar moral life and they come forward and they apologize. What's our first reaction most of the time? I wonder how long this one's going to last. That's not love. That's not what God taught. God says, as long as they're willing to make this right and they're willing to come forward, how many times have you had to ask for forgiveness? How many times have you had to try this? So those who are trying to gain this preeminence or this prominence in the church, they're forgetting the fundamental principle of the church, which is service. It's service. We have two elders of this congregation. Their job is to try to lead us as best they can. However, it's not a lordship. It's not like Don and Larry are walking around like, you have to obey everything that I say at all times. No, they're not lording that over us. They're trying to guide us. They're trying to help us all to get to heaven. They're trying to lead this congregation the way that it should go. But leadership in the church is service. It's service. That's the fundamental role. That's why there were so many qualifications given for elders, because it's a difficult role. And it would be much easier. I'm sure anyone can say in any sort of leadership role that tyranny is the easiest governing. That's the easiest way to go about it. Make sure everyone is in line all the time. You never have free will. That's easy. That's the easy side of things. But guiding is difficult. Leading is difficult. And so these men were trying, this men such as Diotrephes were trying to take this preeminence and John is outright going against this. He says, I'm going to have to have some words with him. I'm going to have to talk about this. This is unacceptable. This is not how the church is supposed to function. But all throughout the world, we see this time and time and time and time again. Well, I didn't like the decision they made. Okay. So? <laughs> so? It's not about how we feel. It's not about how we do things. Was it against God? Well, no. Was it against the Bible? Well, no. Did it hurt the church? No. Then it ain't a problem. <laughs> then it's not an issue. And if we try to make mountains out of molehills, friends, we're going to have the Rocky Mountains before we know it. <laughs> That's the difficulty. And so even in the first century, they're having to deal with this. They're having to try to shut this kind of stuff down because old habits die hard. Old ways of living do not go away easily. But now let's go to the next point here. Paul had to un or understood that there are also times where teaching has wrong motives. Teaching has wrong motives. Are there times, true or false, are there times where we can hear a lesson that is perfectly scriptural, but the person delivering it was not living correctly? We may not know it, but it's very likely that it occurred. Very likely. Why? Because preachers are people too. Preachers are no different. 
I heard a, a guy on one occasion who says that, or he was talking to me on, at, about the role of a preacher and all this kind of stuff. He says, well, you grew up in a preacher's home, right? And I said, yes, that's true. He said, so you were probably quoting Bible verses out of the womb. I said, no, I was quoting Star Wars references out of the womb. <laughs> and he said, what? And I was like, that's how a lot of people view it, though. They seem to think that if you're a preacher or you're part of a preacher's family, that you're the holiest of the holies. No. No. I heard a joke on one occasion that said the only thing worse than a preacher's kid is an elder's kid. <laughs> that's, that's the way a lot of people work. But you see, this is how we like to put things out. We like to think that everything is peachy keen from the leadership. But friends, we're all people. We all make mistakes. The fundamental teaching of Christianity is that none of us are perfect, but we can be perfected. That's the fundamental principle of the scriptures from the beginning. What did we do when we literally had paradise on earth? What was the first thing we did? Sin. You have absolutely everything you could want, everything you could need. It is so comfortable. You didn't even need clothes for protection. And what's the first thing we do? Well, I don't have that. People make mistakes. People do sin. There's a difference between a sinner and a recovering sin addict. <laughs> There's a difference in that. One of the most common things that I hear over and over and over again in the Lord's church is talking, and in just religion in general, is talking about that, well, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. Over and over again, we're all sinners. I hope not. <laughs> if we're all sinners, we're all in trouble because sinner is a lifestyle. Sinner says, I'm going to continue to sin. I am living in sin, and I'm going to continue to sin. A saint is one who said, I was living in sin. I obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that God gave me, and I'm going to live a life faithful to him. Now, can a, a, can a saint sin? Yes. Can a sinner be righteous? They can do good things, but it's not going to be righteous. Because as God described it, our righteousness, what we do, how is it described? How does God describe that? It's as filthy what? Filthy rags. I can go out and do a lot of good things, but that doesn't make anything different. It is only by God that I can have redemption from my sins. I can do quote-unquote good things because we all came from a good source. But that doesn't make me good. That doesn't make me righteous. Only through God can we have that. Let's look at Philippians chapter 1 and talk about these people who had wrong motives, even when they were teaching the Word of God. That's Philippians chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse... We'll start in verse 15. If someone could read verse 15 through... Well, we'll just say one verse at a time. So whoever has it, we'll read a verse and we'll talk about each one. So go ahead and start with verse 15, whoever has it. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envious Christ, and some also of goodwill. All right, so Paul immediately jumps into this and says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. What? <laughs> you mean to tell me you're going to get up and you're going to preach, but it comes from a place of envy and rivalry? Yep. There are some people who that's how they approach things. Well, I'm going, I, that preacher has a bigger audience than me, so I've got to make sure I book every venue so I can be the big preacher. Or that preacher has a book deal, I've got to write a book. 
wrong motive, wrong mentality. See, this is how uh, it begins to creep in. Are they doing good things? Oftentimes, yes. Oftentimes, the books that they're writing are very helpful. Oftentimes, the sermons they're preaching are straight from the book. But the mentality is wrong. But let's continue on. Someone read verse 16. All right, so that going over from verse 16, verse 16 says, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And then as Jonathan read, the former, pro, uh, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. So there's going to be some who approach this from a righteous mentality. I'm just trying to teach the gospel. I'm just trying to help others to see the word of God. They come from a place of goodwill. I'm presenting this to help you. But it goes on, he says, the former proclaimed out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Remember how we were talking about in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 specifically, how Paul was talking about those who were teaching and they were trying to discredit him? Trying to say he was not really a good apostle? Some were trying to preach the gospel in order to put Paul down. But here's the funny part. This is the part that is, is great to listen to. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What's Paul saying? He says, okay. <laughs> you're trying to do that to hurt me? The only person you're hurting is yourself. You're still proclaiming the word of God, and I'm going to be happy that's being proclaimed. Because truth doesn't stop with the deliverer. Just because someone has a wicked life doesn't mean what they're telling you is not necessarily the truth. Remember what we were talking about, I believe it was maybe two Sundays ago or last Sunday, whichever one, but one of the topics that was being discussed was that of if the, the world is always going to present evil against us. They're going to speak evil against Christians. The problem is, when are they right? When they are giving an accusation against God's people and they're right. See, we like to say, well, that came from an atheist, so obviously that's not going to be true. Friends, sometimes it can be. Sometimes the accusations they're laying out are 100% true. One of the biggest critiques of the church, or any church in general, is hypocrisy. Well, how many times does God condemn hypocrisy over and over and over and over and over again? Is it still a problem today? There's still a lot of people who love to name the name of Christ. They love to wear crosses around their neck. They love to sing Amazing Grace, and they've never accessed it. They've never lived the proper life. They left Jesus a long time ago, but they're still in the pews. There's a problem when the enemy of God is correct about his people. There's a problem there. But Paul's saying as long as the truth is being preached, I'm going to rejoice in that because it's not about it would have been very easy for Paul just to become angry and just lash out against everybody. Well, they're just taking everything I'm trying to do for God and they're just throwing it in the gutter. Sometimes that's what's going to happen. But if souls are being saved, the messenger's the least important part. If souls are being brought to Christ, the deliverer is the least important part. And friends, that doesn't matter if it's a preacher member, an elder, or a deacon. The important part is saving souls. 
No, we're not always going to be perfect. Yes, someone can look at your life and my life right now, and there's going to be things we're not proud of. There's going to be things that we did that were wrong. And so, yes, someone can bring that out against you. But anyone could have looked at Paul's life and done the same thing. Anyone could have looked at Peter's life and done the same thing. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. See, if one is teaching the truth with the wrong motive, the punishment is on them and them alone. Remember, we're talking about James chapter 3, verse 1. And what was the premise of James chapter 3, verse 1? Be not many masters knowing what? You will receive greater condemnation. And the reason we discussed that was because what we teach matters. If we lead someone away from Christ, it, it comes back on us too. However, if I'm teaching the truth... I'm not right with God. I may be helping others get to heaven, but I'm sure I'm helping myself. That's on me. It's on me to make sure I'm doing what's right. However, what he's talking about here is this mentality of teaching the truth. See, we do not teach for our own name. This is not the church of Kennedy. It's not the church of Blackwell. It's not the church of Medley or anybody else. It's the church that belongs to Christ. What he says goes, nothing else. Nothing else. Only him. Let's look at Mark chapter 9, verse 35, and the very few minutes that we have left. It's Mark chapter 9, verse 35. Now someone can go ahead and read that for me, please. All right, so this is really kind of the antithesis of what we were talking about in 3 John. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you want to be first in the kingdom? Where do you have to be? A servant in the back. You're not going to leave from the front in the Lord's church. That's not going to happen. Yes, you can be an example, but it better be an example of service. This is not a lordship situation. See, we all are actively working together to make sure that this is accomplished. We lead from the back because we're trying to strengthen the weaker members. We're trying to make sure that they're protected. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the Lord's church who they leave the weak and helpless in the back. And they're like, well, if, if they want to leave, they can leave. But let's make sure it's the case that if someone falls away from the Lord, that's their own fault entirely. And not because we didn't teach. Not because we didn't help. Not because we didn't reach out. See, false teaching comes in many different forms. And false teaching is not only lying. Sometimes it's also the misuse, mistreatment, or the lack of teaching of the gospel. I can be a false teacher by simply not telling you everything you need to know. I could be a false teacher by misusing or misquoting or misapplying what the Bible says. Which is why I've said from this pulpit before and from the other pulpit as well multiple times. If I'm wrong on something, I want someone to tell me. Because James chapter 3 verse 1 is scary. That's a warning to anyone who is going to be teaching the word of God that this is serious. It has consequences. And so it's important that we understand that false teaching is not just the guy who gets up and just teaches everything that's just blatantly wrong. Sometimes it's the guy who you can sit and listen to all day long and you're never going to hear something wrong, but he is not going to tell you everything. 
he's going to hide some of the truth. We talk all the time about people who are in politics or people who are in leadership roles, and we like to say, well, that guy's a liar. You can listen to his speeches, and most of the time they didn't say anything that was actually false. But maybe they just left out some details. Maybe they just didn't tell you everything you needed to hear. Still a lie. Still not true. So it's important when we're approaching the Word of God, and I'm trying to preach the Word of God, or you're trying to teach the Word of God, that we're not leaving the details out. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We're not ashamed of what he taught. Is some of it uncomfortable? Yes. Is some of it going to make people very unhappy? Yes. But we don't hide it. Because we're trying to be teachers of the truth, teachers of what God had said. And if we're going to be examples, if we're going to follow after Christ the way that he laid it out, then we have to make sure we're teaching the whole counsel of God. Now, the good news is, is that we've got 30 seconds left, and we actually finished James chapter 3, verse 1. Now we can move on to verse 10. Stay there for three weeks. <laughs> but that's, that's all that we have in terms of materials or any questions or comments or anything someone has about what we talked about. Thank you for your attention.